And so we started this series talking about love songs. We talked about your love songs, songs that were for you and your significant other, special songs, things that made you remember the first moments of love or that was special to you. And uh, we did that through Facebook. And so this week I went on Facebook because not all songs that are about love are about good. There's lots of songs about love that doesn't end well, about heartbreak, about difficulty, about breakups. And so I went on Facebook and I said, what are your classic heartbreak breakup songs? And here's what was interesting to me. The response was faster and more. People were listing five or six songs instead of one. Like, we got this, we know this. And we had lots of suggestions. And it was just interesting to me to see how that went from all generations. I mean, we we had people... um, from our first service, from our second service, people that I know outside of here, uh, a professor at Union that's one of the most studious guys that I know, an actual descendant of Edgar Allan Poe, wrote about a Dion Warwick song on there. Miss um, Jean Ingram, who's a part of our first service and one of our older members here at First Baptist, wrote about On Top of Old Smokey. And I thought, you mean On Top of Spaghetti? I mean, like... No, On Top of Spaghetti is the parody of On Top of Old Smokey. How many of you know On Top of Old Smokey? A few, some of you are just raising your hand. You don't really know. All right. So it's all these songs in different genres. And I got to thinking about how universal the breakup or the sad love song is. And I thought today we'd take a little trip down memory lane. Because they're everywhere. No matter kind of where you are in society. In fact, one of the greatest traditions in college is really a song that is about a breakup of a relationship. People that are dancing to it or swaying to it or excited that a game has been won or that victory has been had don't realize that it's really a song about a desperate breakup. So, this classic you may not remember as that, but you know it from other places. Just listen to the lyrics of this classic song That reminds us of heartbreak. I was dancing with my darling to the Tennessee waltz When an old friend I happened to see I introduced her to my loved one And while they were dancing My friend stole my sweetheart from me I remember the night and the Tennessee waltz And now I know just how much I have lost Yes, I lost my little darling The night they were playing the beautiful Tennessee Waltz. So for you, maybe Heartbreak is not a classic song like this, but maybe yours is tied more to the British invasion. A group of guys that came over here and stormed the Ed Sullivan show, and after they were talking about done with the hold your hand stuff and needing help, They wrote what some people claim is the greatest pop song of all time, a reflection on what happened yesterday. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away, and now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why she had to go, I don't know, she wouldn't say. And I said something wrong, now I long for yesterday. 
or maybe. It's okay to clap. They're doing a good job. Or maybe yours isn't from across the pond, but from across the state. And heartbreak for you sounds like a girl raised in the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee who wrote a song that has been covered and used more than just about anything else and has become a staple for the song of one who has loved and lost. A song that's been covered as one of the most popular songs of all time, but being a Tennessean, I still got a heart for the original sung by Dolly Parton. Awesome. Well done. Good job. For me, heartbreak sounds like a power ballad. I grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, the heaviest of rockers knew how to spin a song of deep emotional pain. And none spoke to that pain better than poison. Amen. I didn't think I'd ever get an amen for poison (laughs) with this one. We both lie silently still in the dead of the night. Although we both lie close together, we feel miles apart inside. Was it something I said or something I did? Did my words not come out right? Though I tried not to hurt you, though I tried. But I guess that's why they say every rose has its thorn. And just like every night has its dawn. And just like every cowboy <laughs> sings a sad, sad song. And every rose has its thorn. Yeah, it does. We only got a couple more left. We went to one side of the state in East Tennessee, but maybe for some of our people younger than me, heartbreak sounds like West Tennessee. And a guy who lost his teenage love in a very public split up and decided that the best way to respond was to write a song about it and sell a couple of million albums. Maybe JT is more your style. You are my sun, you are my earth, but you didn't know all the ways I loved you, no. So you took a chance and made other plans, but I bet you didn't think your thing would come crashing down, no. You don't have to say what you did. I already know, I found out from him, but there's just a chance for you and me, there'll never be, and don't it make you sad about it, you told me you loved me, why did you leave me all alone, you tell me you need me when you call me on the phone, and girl I refuse, you must have me confused with some other guy. Your bridges were burned, and now it's your turn to cry. And cry me a river, and cry me a river, cry me a river, cry me a river, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And we didn't want to leave out the newest ones that are here, the youngest ones that are here. And so we uh, we got fairly current with what may be the sound of your heartbreak. I had to go back across the pond for this one. And uh, are you singing this one or? Okay. Here's Adele. <laughs> I heard that you settled down, that you found a girl and you're married now. I heard that your dreams came true. Guess she gave you things I didn't give to you. An old friend, why are you so shy? It ain't like you to hold back or hide from life. I hate to turn up out of the blue uninvited, but I couldn't stay away, I couldn't fight it. I'd hope you'd see my face and that you'd be reminded that for me it isn't over. Never mind, I'll find someone like you. I wish nothing but the best for you too. Don't forget me, I bet. I remember you said sometimes it lasts in love, but sometimes it hurts instead. Sometimes it lasts in love. But sometimes it hurts instead. Yeah. I'll give him a hand. <laughs> so, how do you follow that, right? So here's the thing. The reason that those all kind of speak is because it speaks to the human emotion of having love and lost it. Of knowing what it's like to be deeply in love with someone and then desperately not knowing what the future brings. Even secular artists, people that don't have any kind of uh, idea about what God is intending them to write or to do, understand the emotion that comes from that. And I was thinking about this week that, that all those relationships that are described, and even in your relationships, you've all experienced that deep emotional hurt. In fact, if you've never experienced deep emotional hurt, it means that you probably haven't experienced deep Emotional love. It's a part of it. Not not just to have loved and lost, but also to be married and in the midst of that hurt or go through things or be distant even in the midst of that. As I was thinking about all of that, I thought about that most relationships that end, end because of some sort of unresolved conflict that is in the relationship. We've got a Bible turned to Song of Solomon chapter 5, and we're going to finish our series Love Song today talking about how to handle conflict and how to deal with that. And here's to be honest with you, just to tell you, um, the, the book Song of Solomon is not unaware of conflict. We're going to see a conflict here. In fact, this book Song of Solomon is about 20% made up of a conflict that happens between Solomon and his wife. In chapter 5, we see that begin to work out. And here's what I want us to understand from the very beginning is every meaningful relationship and every marriage has conflict. There is conflict in every relationship you're going to have. No, no exceptions there. There's no relationship that never has conflict. In fact, um, I've, ta- I'm, you know, I've been uh, pastoring now for several years and I remember a couple told me we never fight. And I was like, That's not true because it happens. I've said this before, but reality is if two people agree on everything all the time, one of them is unnecessary. You don't need it. There are differences of opinions. My guess is part of what you attracted you to your spouse in the first place, to your significant other, is something that was different about them than you. And as you grow into the relationship, you discover that sometimes differences brings conflict. Every relationship has conflict. And here's what I want you to kind of understand. 
even though it has conflict, it is absolutely worth it. It is worth it and it is worth fighting for. And when you have conflicts in marriage, things in life that are the hardest to get through are sometimes the things in life that are most meaningful. In fact, John, I don't know if we can put this up. There's a verse from Proverbs. It's a strange verse. I want you to look at it with me because I'm going to need to explain it a little bit. It says, where no oxen are, the trough is clean. But much increase comes by the strength of the ox. I know you're blessed by that already. All right. But here's what it's saying. OK, it, it starts with a very simple fact. If you have a barn and you want it clean, don't have animals. If there are no oxen, there's nothing to clean up. You, you realize that animals have things to clean up, right? Okay. Are you here? Yeah, you remember? OK. And so if you don't have any, there's not there. But they say life is better from the increase that comes from the ox. Last week, I remember I showed you the graph that showed marital stuff. We're not going to put it up again, but you remember that? And remember what, call, what we said was the kind of what was the common denominator in those areas where marriage satisfaction went down? What was it? Kids, right? And here's what happened afterwards. Um, there's a Sunday school class here that sends out an email and they send out prayer requests and things they talk about in class. And then usually at the end, one of the teachers puts and here's a sermon summary from the week and just the outline of the sermon. Well, that particular teacher this week was was out last week and had some illness in the family. He said, if somebody wants to give a summary, go ahead. Almost immediately, somebody wrote back, have kids at your own risk. That's the that's the sermon. All right. And it's true, right? If you want a nice life where you don't have to worry about all those ups and downs, just don't have kids. Because where there are oxen, there's a mess. But here's the thing. Those of you that are parents know this. You know, like, you ever had a moment, like, when you, like, our house all the time, it feels like we're picking up stuff all the time. Amen? And I remember a couple of years ago, all our kids were at grandparents and Susan and I were sitting there and, and we thought, we, we don't have anything to pick up. And the house was absolutely clean. If you don't want a dirty house, don't have kids. But they are absolutely worth it. The same is true with marriage. Marriage is going to bring messiness into your life. It's going to upend things. You're not going to get everything you want. Or at least you're not supposed to. You're not going to be able to demand everything you want. You're not going to be able to do everything you want. You're going to have things that you're going to have to back away from and say, I did not in my myself what I wanted get fulfilled in that. But it is absolutely worth it. And what we're going to talk about today is how to navigate that conflict. Because you see... Good couples fight clean. Bad couples fight dirty. Look at Song of Solomon here in a minute. I want to show you just a conflict that arises among this husband and wife. Starting in verse 2. And she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. You have to read that, right? It's an exclamation. My beloved is knocking. So here's the scene. She's in bed. Now, you have to understand, in their day and time, couples did not have a bedroom together in a palace. He had his room. She had her room. But he wants to come in. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He is laying it on thick. Right? He's knocking at the door. Open the door. My love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Now leave it there for just a second because I want to explain this. Apparently, he's been out working into the early hours of the morning. When it says the dew is on his head, it means that he has been working so long that the dew literally has already started to fall and he is wet from the morning dew that is coming. That he is drops of the night are filling his hair. And so here's the scene, all right? He's coming to her room after a long, hard day of work. He's gently knocking on the door, 
filling her with beautiful words of who she is, and he wants to come in. Fill in the blank. All right? And this is how she responds. This is what she thinks. She doesn't say this. I had put off my garment. I didn't want to get up and put it on again. I had bathed my feet. I didn't want to get them dirty. This is the ancient Israel version of I'm tired and I have a headache. All right? Like, I'm done. I'm, it's, I'm in bed. It's over. I'm not getting up. I'm not. No, I don't. Go away. I don't want to be a part of this. And suddenly you have a conflict. Now, the rest of chapter 5, and we don't have time today to go through all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6, but just trust me, the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 shows them working through them. We're going to talk about a little bit of it. But I want you to see from the very beginning, I, I want you to see a couple of things. First of all, I want you to see what is at the root of almost every conflict you're going to have in marriage or in life or in relationships in general. The first thing that's at the center of almost all conflict is simply unmet expectations. From his end, he's coming to her at night. He's knocking gently on her door. He's saying beautiful things to her and he expects her to get up and open the door. And she doesn't. From her perspective, we don't know. Maybe he had talked to her. Maybe they had planned this. Maybe she knew he was coming over, but she had waited up for him. And it got later and later and later. And she said, that's it. I'm done. I have not. He cannot expect me to stay up all night and wait on him. He can't expect me just to be here when he shows up. He's got to learn. And almost all conflict in marriage has at its root this unmet expectations. It happens early on in marriages. You know, people fall in love, they get engaged, and during the fall in love and the engagement and the wedding process, you're putting your best foot forward, and it's like you're on a first date for years, and then you get married, and you can't keep that up. Maybe it was things that she expected him to do. Maybe in her house, her daddy always fixed the things that were wrong. Maybe her dad always took the car to get the gas. Her dad always made sure everything was just right in here. And one day he doesn't do that. And she says, I expected him to do it. Maybe the faucet is leaking just a little bit. And it doesn't bother him a bit. But in her house, the faucet never leaked. Her dad always fixed it. And finally, one day she says, aren't you going to do something about the faucet? And he goes, what what am I going to do? I can't. I don't know how to do anything. Maybe in his house, his mom always had like a a big meal on the table. And he walked in and every, when he got through with homework in the afternoon, when he was growing up, his mom always had a meal on the table and always had meat and a couple of vegetables and some bread and dessert afterwards and best sweet tea. And he, he, he comes to expect that. And so he gets married and thinks that's what marriage life is like. That's what was going to happen. And he walks in and it's a burned tuna casserole what is, what is this where's everything else and suddenly what they expected to happen didn't well i thought you said or i thought you would i always thought my husband would well i expect my wife too and it's not big things like that sometimes it's just valentine's day weekend And he thought he did a really good job picking out the perfect card, but that's all he got. And she was expecting something a little bit more. Or maybe it's a birthday or a wedding anniversary and communications get crossed and they don't get to go to the place they want to go or things don't work out like they thought and suddenly you're in a place where conflict is rising. Also, in the midst of unmet expectations, the second thing that's at the root of all conflict is selfishness now i'm i'm not saying what she did was wrong or i'm not taking sides in this but can you hear in her response why she didn't want to get up it was all about her some of you are like i think that's a perfectly reasonable explanation i don't want to get up because i've already i've already done everything i need to do i mean think about what she says i don't want to get my feet dirty Get a little soil on my feet. Selfishness. Can I tell you something that's not a revelation? We are all selfish creatures. Classic example of that is, how do you determine whether a picture is good or not? How you look in it, right? 
Like you take pictures of the family. You're like, ooh, everybody looks great in that one but me. We're going to choose a different one, all right? It's why it's so hard when you have six people to pick a picture because not everybody looks good in any. Ava doesn't know yet. She's all right. We're selfish people. And selfishness is the enemy of unity. When you're in a relationship, it's hard to do that. And you see these two people. It seems like a, a small thing, but what happens is it tells us in the next, the next passage. And we, we see here that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't react right away. He just responds to her. But here, here's what happens. She says, my love thrust his hand through the opening. And my feelings were stirred for him. So she gets up to open the door for her love. My hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers were flowing with liquid myrrh on the handles of the boat. Now here's what a bolt. Here's what I want you to understand. So here's what happens. Solomon says, knock, knock, knock. My love, my dove, my only one. I want to come in. She just lays there and acts like she's asleep and thinks in her mind, I don't want to get up. I don't have to worry about that. I'm done. And then for whatever reason, she hears him do something with the handle. And it suddenly changes her heart till it was thrilled within her. Now, I would explain that to you if I could. Okay? How she went one moment from, I do not want to see him or worry about it, to, please let me go open the door for him. All right? Here's what I will tell you. Women change their mind quickly sometimes. Okay? Amen. All right, I got a few there. It just happens. And I don't know what happens here. It just happens. From get away from me, I don't want to see you, to oh, how fast can I get to the door? Here's what he did. When he knocked and she didn't answer, he just left. But before he left, he took a little perfume, something that would have been seen as an aphrodisiac in their society, and he just kind of stuck it through the door and made it apparent that the smell would be there. And so when she goes to open the door, that perfume, that oil gets on her hand. That's what she's talking about this on the handle of the boat. It goes on in the next verse to say this. I opened to my beloved, but he had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. Suddenly she realizes, "Uh uh-oh, we got a problem. She goes to the door. She puts her hand on the door. He's left this present for her. She opens it excited that he's there and he's gone. And the words, my soul failed me when he spoke, is this realization that there is now an issue. And what happens in conflict in marriage, the conflict happens, unmet expectations of selfishness, and usually one before the other, sometimes both at the same time, suddenly realize that something is not right. And they don't, they don't like it. They, they, they're, it's uncomfortable there. They're, they're sitting next to each other and there's an, uh, a, uh, there is this tension that can be felt even though it's not spoken. And she says, I made the mistake. When he spoke, I should have answered, and I didn't. Here's what I love about what Solomon did. Now, hear me. Running away is not always the right answer. But at this moment, he could have reacted in a myriad of ways. Being the king, being who he was, he could have forced himself in. He could have said it's time. He could have started yelling and screaming. But he didn't. He just stepped back. He responded. He didn't react. And what I want to tell you over the next couple of minutes, next few minutes is a series of things that um, actually come out of two or three books, but the classic book that it comes out of is a, a book by a guy named Tommy Nelson called The Book of Romance. And it is uh, suggestions on ways to make sure you fight fair in marriage. And it involves several nevers and one always. Now, if you don't write anything else down, anything else I've said over the last few weeks, then write these down because they are very, very important and they will help you fight in a way that is fair. Here's the first one, if we can pull it up. Never respond to your mate harshly. Guys, this is especially important for us. Most of us men never understand the power that the tone of our voice can have. 
In fact, if you're a guy, my guess is at some point in your life, you have said something that you didn't think you were yelling, you didn't think you were screaming, you didn't think you were being overly harsh, and suddenly a female or a son or daughter in your life, it just looks crushed by it. You're like, I didn't even yell. If you want me to yell, I can yell. But the weight of the tone of your voice is significant. I'll never forget the first time that I really got on to Maddie. It's been a couple of years ago now when she was old enough to kind of know what was going on. And there was a look in her eyes that I'd never seen in my boy's eyes. That was just crushed. And I didn't think I'd yelled or screamed, but my tone was harsh. And as guys, one of the things that happens in our lives, if we're not careful, it's easy for that to elevate quickly into a harsh tone. Solomon could have responded harshly. Get up. Come here. We talked about this. You're not asleep. I know you're not. Get up. But he didn't. Don't respond to your mate harshly. Here's a second one. Never touch your mate out of temper or frustration. Ever, ever, ever. It's one of those things you really shouldn't even have to say, but in the society we live, we see it played out time and time again. Domestic violence, domestic abuse happens. Don't ever, man or woman, touch your mate out of temper or frustration. Here's the third one. Lots of nevers. Never seek to shame your spouse in public or in private. Never cease, never seek to make them feel worse about themselves. Never bring up things about your spouse in public that would make them feel awkward or feel like you are shaming them. Intentionally doing that. As a group of guys, don't ever get around and start talking about your wives and talking about all their faults and what's happening. As a group of women, don't talk about all the things that your husband is not doing or should be doing. Don't spend time rehashing the failings of your spouse. One of the most uncomfortable things you can do as a couple is to be with another couple that starts to fight while you're together. Just like, okay, we're going to step away here, let you all have your moment and move on. Here's the next never. Never frighten in front of your kids or use them as leverage in a disagreement. Here's what I'll tell you. As a, somebody that, if you're somebody that doesn't have kids, this seems like, oh, absolutely, that would not be difficult at all. For those of us that have kids, you realize that a lot of times your fights spring out of moments with your kids. Or you find yourself in a place where disagreements are happening. You know, um, I read somewhere the other day that one of the most frequent places where parents have fights in front of their kids is on vacation. Have you ever had to been on vacation with kids and they're like, I need to go back to work to rest, right? Don't use them as leverage in a disagreement. GPS has saved a lot of people from this because, uh, Right? All right, here's the next never. Never mention your spouse's parents or other family member. That must have hurt a few out there. Right now you are acting just like your mother. Watch out, I can see your dad coming through right now. Y'all don't ever do that, do you? Never, right? Never. Never mention your spouse's parents. Here's the next one. Never get historical. That's not a misprint. You know what I mean by this? Don't bring up your past in the current argument. Well, that would be fine, but I remember when you said the last time we had this issue. It's amazing how good your memory can be about past grievances with your spouse. I remember three and a half years ago, it was a Saturday, Sunday afternoon. We had been to church. Everything was good, I thought. And then you brought this upon me, and I haven't, it's not been the same since. And I, I don't mean to bring it up again, but, you know, it's there. Don't get historical. 1 Corinthians 13 actually speaks to this. It says, love keeps no record of 
wrongs. That means when you've cleared it, it's clear. Get over it and move on. Don't bring up the past. Don't bring up past mistakes. Don't bring up past sins. Don't say, hey, remember when, remember when. Don't hold it over your spouse like, I'll forgive you, but you're not going to forget it. And so the next time they bring up argument, well, if you had never, then I would not have. Don't hear historical. Never try to win. You realize if you win, that means your partner what? Lost. And when you come to disagreements, it's not about who win or loses. It's about reconciliation and coming together. And this is really, really hard because in this, this is what happens. Usually when someone's talking, when you're trying to win, you're listening to what they're saying. But what you're really listening for is gaps and openings that you can use to expose what they're saying. And so you can come back. And while they're talking, you'll go, oh, I got them now. I got them. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, finish talking. All right, now I got you. And when you try to win, you end up hurting one another. Here's the thing I've learned. I'm not good at winning anyway. Here's this. Never say never or always. Well, you never. If you would not always. Nobody never and nobody always. So never say never or always. Because here's what happens if you're arguing. Well, you never say anything nice about me. That is not true. Three weeks ago, I said that you are really good at this. I have told you before, you're really good at making me feel bad. That is complimenting you. Never say never or always. A couple more. Never yell, use put-downs, or verbally defame your spouse. Don't yell, use put-downs, or verbally defame your spouse. It's amazing how the people that we love the most in our lives know the buttons to push in us to bring us to a level of anger and resentment and even to our voice racing to a level that nobody else knows how to get us to. The people that we love most passionately are the people that can get our passions raised at a level of not good things as well. But don't ever do this. And here's the last one. Never put off seeking resolution. Here's what I love about what happens in Song of Songs. Okay, Song of Solomon here. So she realizes her mistakes. My love had turned. I was crushed that he had left. I sought him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. In fact, in verse 7 it says that she goes out and the watchmen are out there and they're looking for her. And it says they beat and wounded me. That doesn't mean they actually beat her. What that means is that they wounded her with their words. That they were saying that they, they bruised her because she, everywhere she looked she couldn't find him. She couldn't look for him. And she knew there was a problem but she wasn't going to let it linger. So she goes all about the city. They took away my veil. That means they said, what did you do? Why is he lost? Why did he run away from you? These watchmen on the walls. Next verse says this. It says, I adjure you, all daughters of Jerusalem, if you see him, tell him I am sick with love. She realizes in her bed that there is a problem. And she says, I'm not going to let this fester. I'm not going to let it go. When you're at... um. When you're at weddings and you're passing cameras around to have people give words of advice to the groom or the bride and their new marriage, one of the phrases that people use most often is, don't go to bed angry. Well, the truth is, that's not as practical as it sounds. Because sometimes the disagreement comes when you're both about to fall asleep. Sometimes the disagreement comes when you don't have time to settle it in that moment before it's time to go to bed. It just happens. And so the issue is not a uh, legalistic, well, the sun has gone down. We cannot be angry anymore. It's over. The issue is we're not going to let this fester and we're going to work at it and work at it and go for it. And Solomon even, it says, we don't know where he went, but he went away and he, he went to do something. He went to find something. As he goes away, he allows her in that moment to come after him and try to find it. And even when she finds him, you can see that she is working on what it could do to resolve the situation. Don't give up on it. And here's the last bit of advice I would give when it comes to relationships and uh, how to fight fair. Respond, don't, don't react, and then do this. Give it to God. Here's what I love about this passage of Scripture. We don't have any uh, idea what Solomon did, but we do know that he uh, kind of went away and he allowed her to work through things. He didn't force her. He didn't try to change her. He didn't try to manipulate her. He just let the Lord work in her life. Can I tell you something? It is not your job to change your spouse. 
I'm going to say that again. It is not your job to change your spouse. Now, that's not to say that there aren't imperfections, but what it means is your job is to be faithful to what God has called you to be and trust the Lord to change the things that need to be changed in your spouse. If your spouse has wronged you, bringing it up over and over and over and over and over again is not going to have the effect of suddenly changing them. Deciding to do things for them to try to get them to see how great you are and how bad they are is not going to change them. But giving it to the Lord and saying, listen, I am someone in need of working here. I need you to help me here. I see an issue and I'm praying about it. In Scripture, Paul tells us that God who began a good work in us is the one that will carry it on to completion. I've seen a lot of marriages where the wife thinks that she is the one that is going to carry on the work. To change him into the person. Or the husband thinks that he is the one that is going to change her into the person God intends for her to be. Here's the point. In the book Song of Solomon, we, we see this couple fight. We see them upset. We see this conflict happen. And she goes and finds him the next day when she gets up and she goes down to the garden. And you already have in there that he, she is talking about how great he is. She gives reference to how strong he is and how respected he is. And you get to him and he has thought through this and he just wants her to know how lovely she is. And there's more of those things that you can use to, you know, to really impress your, your wife. Valentine's Day is gone. Maybe you want to give her a card just for the fun of it about the fact that he tells her that her hair is like a flock of goats. Some of you. Wives would love that. Or that her teeth are like a flock of lambs coming up from washing and she's not even missing a tooth. Right? And so he says, you're beautiful in all your ways and I want you to know that. He's given her big time compliments. And what we see at the end of this chapter is this couple who wouldn't let this small disagreement turn into a major conflict because they both went after it to try to get it resolved. We see them back together in a loving embrace with God doing more than he was doing in the beginning. And it set sail on the end of the book of Song of Solomon to a great relationship. Here's the thing. Conflict is going to happen in your relationship. It is. How you respond to it is going to determine the depth and the length and the quality of that relationship. Let's pray together.